Uh, there we go. That's good. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Joe. I am the campus pastor out at the Ridge. Um, some of you might not even know we have another campus. Uh, we do. It's out in Sunny Ridge called The Ridge, and uh, it's a great little community. We're quite small. We have around about 50-odd people that attend on a Sunday. Um, we meet at 9 o'clock. So if ever you're running late for this service, but you don't feel like waiting till the 10, come and join us out at the Ridge. You'll get a hug at the door. So if you don't like hugs, just walk around doing this, all right, because you'll get a ton of those. Um, enough of that. Enough of me. Uh, let's dive into the passage uh, that we're going to be really focusing on this morning and unpacking we're going to be talking about hospitality um, and its use in missions. But in order to do that, let's look at Jesus. In Luke 7, Luke 7, verse 34, is our main text. We'll be reading Luke 7, verse 34. And we're going to be jumping around to a bunch of different texts. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open. We're going to be uh, looking at a number of things. But while you're turning there, uh, I'm going to ask you questions, rhetorical, so don't shout out answers. If you want to, you can, but um, I'm going to answer it. So, um, but the, the question that I have is, when we, if, I, if I'd ask you to finish the phrase, the Son of Man came, how would you finish it? And talking about the Son of Man here, we're talking about Jesus. So Jesus came, how would you finish it? Some of us might think, man, Jesus came preaching, which he did. He came teaching us how to live moral lives, which... He did, um, you might say, he came to demonstrate and model for us how to live a life of holiness, which he did. He came to help and uh, give compassion to those in need. Uh, he came to die for us on the cross. We might say those things. And maybe we can flip the question around and look at ourselves. We could ask the question, we should go, and how would you finish that? You might say, we should go preaching, standing on street corners, Preaching the gospel, we should go and love the poor to help the widows and, and the orphans, like Scripture tells us to. We should maybe be a little bit technical and adapt to the culture around us so that we might be able to reach them for Christ. And all of those are good answers. But when it comes to trying to answer, what did the Son of Man come to do? The Son of Man came. Scripture gives us a couple of, uh, gives us three answers to this question. And the first one we find is in, in Mark 10, verse 45. It's, it says this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And, and something very similar in Luke 19, verse 10, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. These two particularly, Jesus uh, and here, when he speaks, gives a bit of insight and clarity into purpose of why he came. Why did Jesus come? Well, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Why did he come? Well, he came to seek and save the lost. That was purpose, why he came. But how did he achieve this? How did Jesus go about trying to seek and save the lost and serve us? Well, we get insight into our passage this morning. Luke 7, verse 34. Let's read it together. I'm going to read the whole thing. That whole verse, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here Luke gives us insight in how one of the main vehicles, one of the main models and mission strategies that Jesus has in order to serve us, to redeem us, to seek and save the lost, Jesus said, and Luke shows us that Jesus came eating and drinking. Isn't that mind-blowing? That Jesus' mission strategy was to eat and drink. 
was hospitality. That he just wanted to eat and drink with us so that he might serve us and he might seek and save the lost. But to understand how strange this is that Luke would say something about the Son of Man like that, we need to understand that the Son of Man is a reference from Daniel 7. And really, in a nutshell, what it is, is Daniel, when he talks about the Son of Man, he's meant to be this man who would come with the authority of God to arrive and rule the nations. He would be king and rule the world, essentially, establishing Israel as this powerhouse. But here, Luke goes, no, he has come eating and drinking. Very different to what Jews expected expected a man to come and liberate them from Rome, to liberate them from that oppression and establish Israel as the the new Rome, if you will, the new powerhouse of the world. Yes, he was going to eat and drink. Of course he was. But it wasn't going to be one of the main primary things in which he focused on. That maybe afterwards, after he's won the battles, after he's established them, he would eat and drink a lot, but not now. And, And it wasn't just on a side eating like we eat three days, three times a day. It's not just one of those. It seems Jesus did it quite regularly to a point that those who did not like Jesus, who did not agree with his teachings and what he was stood for, that they would go around to, to an extent saying, man, you're a glutton. You, you're drunk. Look at him. He just eats and drinks all the time. And a, a, a glutton is someone who eats way too much. A drunkard is someone who drinks way too much. So Jesus wasn't a glutton. Of course not. They're exaggerating. He wasn't a drunkard, but they used that as a form to point, say, man, look at that man. To a point even they asked the disciples, well, look at John's disciples. Why, why do they fast and pray? But you guys, you just drink and you eat. That's all you do. You're not even fasting and praying. You're eating and drinking. What's wrong with you? And Luke, in, in, in the gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus ate regularly. They are um, ten, ch- 10 occasions in nine chapters where Jesus is either eating or drinking. And if he's not eating or drinking, he's going from a meal to another meal. And he is, if he's not doing that in his teaching, he's often using food as a reference. He just liked his food. Jesus liked a good care. He liked a good party. He liked a good time with other people. He really did enjoy it. Jesus' mission strategy was to sit down and have a meal that would extend into the evening. And man, he would evangelize to people. He would tell them about the hope that he is bringing. We see this with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus 19, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm eating with you tonight. Come in. He invites himself over. How rude is that? I'm coming to your house to eat. At the end of it, Zacchaeus comes and he's repented. He changes his heart. And that, that's when Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Part of Jesus' mission strategy was to sit around into the evening discipling his disciples, those he taught, those who were following him, those who invited him over, to be able to share God's word and unpack it in the light in which they're meant to understand it around fish, bread, and a pitcher of wine. It was this wonderful thing that Jesus would use, this element of food, to share wonderful grace, community, and hope to those he wanted to reach. It's this beautiful thing that we have. And it's no wonder if Jesus used this as his primary vehicle to reach and seek and save the lost, one of his main ones to do that. that. That's why in Scripture we see such an emphasis for us as Christians who are followers of Christ, who are to make his name known, 
who are to be like him and pursue him, that hospitality is such a big emphasis in Scripture. We see this a, a number of times in Scripture, challenging us as Christians following. We see in Romans 12, verse 12, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I love that. Not just show it when it comes around and it's your turn, no, but seek it out. Look for opportunities to be hospitable. That's a lovely word, hey, hospitable. It's nice when you can get it out the rolls of the tongue. Seek to be hospitable. Seek it out. Show hospitality. Do it. Not just randomly, but look for that. Look who, no one raised their hands this morning because they knew, but look around. Is there, is there someone here you don't know? Just go and invite them over for lunch this afternoon. Hey, what are you doing later today? Come over for lunch. Seek it out. Again, we see in 1 Peter 4 verse 9, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love that. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Particularly when that person invites somebody over that you didn't initially invite, and they annoy you, they're opinionated, they're argumentative, and you're, oh man, I can't believe. No, no, don't grumble. Show one another hospitality and do it with joy in your hearts, says Peter. Again, in Matthew 10, verse 40, Jesus says these incredible words, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Hospitality becomes an opportunity where Christ can be received. Isn't that crazy? As you receive people in and they receive you into their homes, there's this opportunity that Christ might be received in that moment. Wonderful. And again, the last one we're going to look at is in Hebrews 13, verse 2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. We'll stop there. And remember, hospitality, and I think we've gotten into this wrong idea. Hospitality is primarily around strangers. It's not having our best friends over a lot. No, but yeah, the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, that's good and community is great, but really show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, look for the time to show hospitality to someone you don't know. I mean, I'm sitting in this building. I, I, I don't know a lot of you. I recognize some of your faces, but I, I don't know you. And how often have we been coming to church at the same time? How often do you know people around here that you see but you don't know? Invite them over for supper. Have them over, says Hebrews. Do not neglect it, so seek to show it out. See, hospitality was a model that Christ used to show grace, to enact community, and to enact hope. Grace, community, and hope was often extended in this moment of hospitality with Christ. So we're going to look at a, a couple of stories. We're going to look at three stories this morning around grace, community, and hope. And we're going to see how Jesus showed those. And hopefully that stirs something in our hearts. So the first story we find is in Luke um, 5, verse 27 and 32. Luke 5, verse 27 and 32. So if you've got your Bibles, you're pretty much just flipping over a page. A page or two. Luke 5, verses 27 and 32. It says this. After this, he, this Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast. There's the food in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician 
but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees have no problem with the fact that Jesus is having a party. Um, The Pharisees partied a lot themselves. We'll see that in one of our stories. But the problem that they have is more with the guest list. According to them, the guest list consisted of tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors, fair enough to the Pharisees, were the worst of the worst people. Not only did they take money away from you, which we don't like SARS in the tax system, we, they went and they would take money for themselves as well. So say 15% tax is what we have. The tax man comes and says, you need to give me 25. And there was nothing that a normal average person could do about it. So you would have to give the money over. And so you hated them because not only were they lying in their own pockets and breaking yours, is that they were stealing and becoming rich. But more so than that, you've got to understand, and we don't have time to get into it, but who were the tax collectors working for? They're working for Rome, the oppressors of Israel. And so here you have another Israelite joining the enemy, taking your money and more money for them. They were essentially traitors, traitors of God's people and traitors to God. That's what they were. And so they are disgusted by the fact that Jesus would be even hanging out with these men. But here's the thing. We've got to understand even more so than this to understand how scandalous this was, what, how much culture played a role around meals. In the Middle East, particularly in Jesus' day, there's this rich imagery and significance around food. It symbolized um, friendship. It symbolized unity. It symbolized intimacy. But even more so in a Jewish culture. You see, the Jews had, under Moses, been given a dietary law. They had to eat certain foods. They weren't allowed to eat some things, and they were allowed to eat certain things. And as a result, there became this uh, divide between Jews and Gentiles because Jews could never eat with a Gentile because they weren't sure whether or not the food was kosher or not. And so over a period of time, they became this isolated hub where Jews never spent time with anyone else other than themselves. But by the time we reach Jesus' day, not only do we have Levitical laws and dietary laws in which they had to follow, but they had extra added laws that the religious elite called the Pharisees had decided to add onto it. You see, the Pharisees thought to themselves that what they need is a pure nation. If God is going to bless the people of Israel like he promised he would, the people of Israel need to be pure. And so they thought, well, let's add extra laws above the laws that God had given to try establish even more purity. And some of those were around dietary laws. And so they thought to themselves, man, how can we make this food thing even more pure than it currently is? They thought, man, the the priests have their own set of dietary laws. It's harder. It's more difficult to follow. Let's make that the standard that everybody else has to eat by. They all have to do that. The problem with this was that it was extremely expensive. The average Jew couldn't eat meat on a regular occasion. They'd probably eat fish once a week. But the dietary laws around being a priest considered a lot of meat, a lot of particular grains, a lot of things. And so what it automatically did was this, that those who were on the middle class and and lower income bracket could not afford to do it. 
Only the religious elites and the real rich could afford to follow this. And so even if you desperately wanted to do it with all your heart to follow that, to be pure, you couldn't. And what the Pharisees started to do and turn around to all these people and say, you're sinners. How can you not follow this? You're disgusting. And they automatically started to place a massive burden on the lower and middle class people and started to call them sinners even though they weren't. I want you to notice in the story we've read, how does um, Luke refer to the people, the guest list, tax collectors and others? The Pharisees say tax collectors and sinners. They weren't sinners. But in the Pharisees' eyes, this religious elite who controlled everything said you were sinners. Burdened, set apart, pushed aside, marginalized because they were not rich enough to follow a law that was not required from them or from God. And Christ here, in his absolute grace, absolute grace comes to them and eats food with them, shows intimacy and relationship with them, says you are not pushed aside, but rather you are here with me where the religious elite wouldn't have done anything with them. For the first time, these people have relationship, community, and feel grace where they hadn't in the past. How incredible is that? And you see, what Christ is doing here is he's not in any way pushing aside or dismissing the Levitical law. He's not. He's not saying it's not worth your while, but rather he's saying it's been fulfilled in me. What you need is not purity laws. What you need is me. I have come to atone for your sin. I have come to die for you. I have come to baptize you with my spirit. I have come to write God's law in your heart. You do not need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What you need is me. He extends grace. And church, our tables need to start reflecting Christ more than the Pharisees. And I'm going to say this quite often this morning. I think I might, but it's, it's quite important that our tables often reflect our theology. Our tables often reflect our theology. So we might say, Joe, that sounds great. But do our tables reflect that? Are our tables like Christ's or are our tables like the Pharisee? Because Christ crossed the divide. He has this burdened people who need grace and here he goes to them. But what did the Pharisees do? They created the gulf between themselves and these so-called sinners. They created these extra laws. And instead of lifting one finger to help, man, we realize that you can't do this. It's expensive. How can we help you to, to get to this? We see you want to do it. Instead, they pointed fingers. Do our tables reflect only righteous and holier-than-thou type people, or do they reflect people who desperately need the grace of God? Because Christ went to them, he extended grace. And our tables, when we realize this, become a key tool for the kingdom. As we show people, we love you, we care for you, but there is this great person named Jesus that you need. The world has pushed you aside, but I want you to know he hasn't. Our tables become a time to, to enact grace. The second time we see Jesus, in, or another time we see Jesus 
um, in a meal is he enacts community. We see this in Luke 7, verses uh, 36 to 39. So back to Luke 7. Luke 7, chapters, uh, Luke 7, 36 to 39. He says this, 36 to 39. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So it doesn't make it clear here, but she's more likely a prostitute. A woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So it's more likely at the end of this um, meal, meals happened, it's done, and it's dusted, there's discussion that takes place, just like ours. We eat, and then we say, do you want coffee? Do you want tea? Have some biscuits? And we chat into the evening, and we talk about various things. And they've probably been in the Pharisee's house, probably talking about Scripture and God's Word. They're testing Jesus. The chat's going on, and, um, and this is when the woman arrives at the end of the meal. Now, she got in more likely because in those days, most houses had semi, particularly big ones, had semi-public courtyards. And so those who were visitors or walkers, uh, passers-by, could even walk past and contribute to conversation that was taking place. The poor would even stand there and, and wait, hoping that at the end of the meal, they might get some leftovers. So this lady is more likely used this semi-public courtyard, walk straight into the dining room and starts rubbing Jesus' feet. But again, she hasn't just walked into any average Joe's house. She's walked into a Pharisee's house. You remember who have a huge thing about purity. They want the world to be pure. They want Israel to be pure, but they can't really control that. But what they can control is their homes being pure. And so the idea of having a, a woman of the city walking in was something that was scandalous, something that they would not have had. She wouldn't have been allowed near their house, never mind have physical contact with one of their guests. They disgusted, they despised her, she would have been like a disease, that she, they would have had to be pushed out, don't touch her. But what's even more shocking is her actions with Jesus. It's extremely intimate, it really is. She comes in, she starts rubbing his feet, touching him all over. She, she starts to wipe her tears with her hair. She lets it down. Now, that was, means nothing to us, but in, in Jesus' day, that was something that you only kept for the bedroom, letting your hair down. Yeah, she does that. She anoints his, she's, his feet with an ointment, a perfume. It's real intimate. But probably what's even more shocking than that is Jesus' response. He, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, no, stop that. He, he doesn't say, sorry, like, I know what you're trying to do. It's very sweet of you, but it's just inappropriate for now. Can, can you leave it? He doesn't do any of that. He just keeps quiet, even though his reputation is at stake. We see it in verse 39, the, the Pharisee Simon says, if he was a prophet, he would know. Jesus does, but he just keeps quiet. His identity, he is happy to connect his identity with her. doesn't mind. 
doesn't mind what they think because of this. And just as much Jesus is happy to connect his identity with us. He's happy to be called a friend of sinners. In fact, we see in our passage this morning, as we start off in verse 34, he's called a friend of sinners. And the very next story, instead of defending Christ to say he's not a friend of sinners, he goes on to show that he is, in fact, a friend of sinners. He, he shows it. He wants you to know that Jesus cares about this lady who is a lady of the night. He wants to show that he is a friend of sinners. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man coming in glory, but in Luke 7, it's this gracious Savior coming to extend grace to the most marginalized. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he hang out with those who are marginalized, like tax collectors and sinners? Because Christ wants them to know that they are able to have him They are able to receive him. He will not cast them out. They can come to him him as they are. That those who are lonely when they come to Christ are no longer lonely. That those who are aliens as they come to Christ are no longer aliens. Those who are strangers who come to Christ are no longer strangers. They are able to be a part of a community, a part of something. They're able to receive Christ. And again, I've got to ask, Do our tables reflect this? Do our tables show a variety of different people who are cast out and maligned by society and marginalized by society? Or are they like the Pharisees that only look like us? Because if you won't mind me doing this, connecting this little point to last week's sermon. Last week we spoke about the importance of diversity. The fact that the gospel is not just for a certain group of people, but rather, as we surely, most of us all believe, that the gospel is for everyone. Regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of gender, regardless of generation, the gospel is ready for everyone. And if we believe in Christ, you will be saved. That there's no special group, there's no less group, but rather we all sinners, all needing grace, all needing Christ, and therefore at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And when we believe in Jesus, we are brought into a community of people, brought into a family. We are made part of one people. Do we believe that? Do we? Man, and I hope we do. But again, our tables reflect our theology of our hearts because if we do and this is challenging to me our tables are going to look different to ourselves the guests that we have around aren't going to be of the same generation of the same colored skin of the same language oh man they might sometimes of course but do we have different people around our table do we have the marginalized of society around our table do we or don't we Man, this beautiful opportunity here is that a table, a meal is intimate, it shows friendship, it shows unity. And those who have been outcast by society, all of a sudden, sitting around a meal, what are we able to do? We're able to say, we are with you in this. You're valued. You are cared for. We love you. And we are able to demonstrate practically the gospel in our sharing and eating of food. It's this wonderful thing that Jesus uses. And man, again, church, hospitality is one of the tools, the best tools that we have for the kingdom. 
Jesus uses it to extend community. Let's look at our, our, uh, our third one. Jesus uses a meal to extend hope. Now, the story that I have around this meal is seen in all four Gospels. It's the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that we see in Scripture that's found in all four Gospels. John is very different, but John even records this. We see it in Luke 9, but I I particularly like the story in uh, John 6, verses 1 to 15. We're not going to read it. It's too long. But let me tell you it. What happens is Jesus and his disciples have been teaching and casting out demons and healing the sick and the poor and all those kinds of things. And as a result, what has happened is this massive crowd has gathered. Um, Scripture says about 5,000 men. That's just the men. There's more likely women and children up into the 10,000 odd people are there around Jesus. Jesus looks at his disciples realizing that these people have nowhere to go to get food. They're in the middle of the wilderness They've got no shops to go to. He says to Philip, Philip, how are we going to feed these people? I mean, that's a, that's a big question. How are we going to feed 5,000 men and, and plus? If you had asked me that today, I'd, I'd probably stress and panic. I don't know where I'd go to every spa in East London and still not have enough bread. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, go and do it. And Philip goes, like, man, we don't have enough money. It's not going to work. Practically, this is madness. Just send them home. And, and there's a guy named Andrew. He's very silent in Scripture. You don't hear much of him, one of the disciples. But he has a bit of faith. And he heads out, and he, he seems to find a boy with five loaves and two fish. It's, it's a beautiful story. And he comes across, and he shows Jesus the, the five loaves and two fish. And as I think he shows Jesus, look what I found. I think he kind of realizes how mad this is and kind of lacks faith again. He goes, oh, but it's, not, it's never going to be enough. Kind of was there, but just wasn't. And Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish, man, and he, he blesses it. He looks to heaven, he blesses it, and they just start to just give. And these five loaves and two fish just go, and they go, and they go, and he feeds everyone till they are full. In fact, they have 12 baskets left over. It's mind-blowing. And, and people see this and see this miracle and what happens is they start to talk among themselves. And, and it seems like, and particularly in the, in the Gospel of John, they want to make Jesus king. And so Jesus being, a, what Jesus does is he, he does his ninja thing, which we sometimes see in Scripture, and he just disappears up into a mountain. And no one knows where he, where did the guy go? He was like, right here. I didn't, where did he go? And he went up into the mountains. But, but I want to stop there quickly. Why now? Why now do they want to make him king? Man, they, he's just done healing. Jesus has done miracles after miracles before. He's healed the blind. He's healed the deaf. He's healed the lame. He's healed the paralyzed. He's, he's healed and cast out demons. He's even raised people from the dead. Yet never out of those ones do they want to make him king. Why now that he feeds them do they want to make him king? Well, I think you've got to understand what they see in the Jews. They're in the wilderness. How does this sound familiar to you? They're in a wilderness, no food, and somebody prays, and food comes down from heaven. Manna. Got it? Man, it reminds them drastically of when Moses had liberated them from Rome. I mean, Egypt, the powerhouse of the world, into a wilderness where there was no food and they were hungry. And he prays and God brings down food. And now what they're seeing is this man in a wilderness, they're under the oppression of Rome, and he prays and suddenly there's food. They start to think, man, 
this is the guy who's meant to come and he's going to feed us. He's going to take care of us just like Moses did. He's going to liberate us from Rome. This is great. And they start to perceive this is what Jesus is meant to do, which he wasn't. And, and so that's why he, he heads off in, into the distance, into the, up into a mountain, because they don't, he doesn't want them to take him as king. That's what he, not, he did not come to be king. And so the evening comes and it rolls through. There's some crazy things that happens. The disciples try across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks on water, just standard stuff for Jesus. And they arrive on the other side in a place called Capernaum. The next day, rocks up, morning happens, everyone wakes up. <sighs> so what's for breakfast? Where's the Jesus kid? I've got some eggs, I have some rolls, let's have egg, bacon, rolls. How does that sound? No, no bacon, no bacon, no bacon. Egg rolls, let's do that. No, he's not here. So they start to look for him. They search, they seek. And man, they, they must have gone a long time because they would have to have crossed the Sea of Galilee just like Jesus. They would have had to found him in another town called Capernaum. And they eventually do, and they, they see him and they go, oh, teacher, we've been looking for you everywhere. Doesn't that sound great? That's what we want, people seeking Jesus. And Jesus goes and says, man, you seek me because you've seen your, the signs, but not because you've understood the signs, but because you want the fill of loaves. Jesus says, you, you seek me not because you understand why I have come, but because rather you're hungry and you want someone to feed you. And a long conversation breaks out. A variety of different things take place in this, they speak. But essentially, Jesus says to them, man, you want something that is temporal, but what I have to give you is eternal. It lasts. And they go, give us that thing. We want it. And he turns to them and says, I am it. I am the bread of life. And whoever eats of me will never hunger again. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus says, I am the hope that you need. I am what you need. You want, you want to have life, a temple good life. Man, I've come to give eternal life. You want a, a kingdom to be established on this world. Man, I have come to give, bring in the kingdom of God. I've come to bring you something far greater. You want to be liberated from Rome. I've come to liberate you from sin. I am what you need. Jesus uses this wonderful feeding. Man, he hosts 5,000 men in plus. And he uses his opportunity to say, I am the hope you need. And our meals, church, becomes such a place where we are able to extend hope to those who are hopeless. Our world is broken. Just turn on the TV. Just look on social media. We are in pain. We are suffering. And they're longing for something. And his name is Jesus. His name is Christ. Even in the suburb that we live in, and let's be honest here, most of us will not go hungry this month. But we are lacking and we are wanting. We are searching for something. And we need it. We want life. We need this life. But everything we go to does not satisfy. What they need, church, is Christ. They need his Christ. And our tables become a place where we are able to come alongside someone, put our arms around them and say, we are with you. Man, we love you. You might be in trouble, but we are going to extend God's love to you in action. But not only that, our tables become a place where we get to speak with the hope because we know that this world is not it. 
that our tables become a place where we get to speak with such hope because we know there is a kingdom to come that is far greater. And so what if this life is tough? So what if it's difficult because we consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us? Romans 8, verse 18. Our tables become a beautiful place where we get enacted but point to someone else and his name is Jesus, the hope of the world. Our tables are a key tool for us, for the kingdom. Let us utilize it well. We can enact grace. We can enact community. We can enact hope around food. Church, I want you to understand that Christ did not come with amazing mission strategies, programs, events, and projects established. Man, he could have, right? He he is the, he's God. He's pretty creative. Creation kind of shows you that he can come up with some awesome stuff. And he could have arrived and established a mission, uh, a strategy that would have been effective for thousands of years and done exactly what he wanted it to do. But he didn't. He came eating. His mission strategy was meals. Oh man, how beautiful it is that we can just have meals and enact and live our life like Christ can. It's this beautiful thing. But I want you to know that meals don't save people. The gospel does. Hear me here. The meals don't save people. The gospel does. And so it's great to have food, but there's a place where we need to make sure that if we have a passion for Jesus and a passion for people, the gospel is going to come through. People are going to be saved. People are going to be drawn in, all because of this wonderful thing called a meal. And what a meal does is it creates this natural opportunity to be and cultivates this wonderful platform to be able to um, resonate with the people that we're powerfully speaking about. So let me just give it again. There is people who lack grace. Our tables become a wonderful thing as we practically show them grace. Man, they realize that there's someone else that loves them more as we speak about him. Does that make sense? Someone who, has, who extends grace to them far more than we do, even though we are showing it to them. Our actions, our actions, our actions show a greater thing to what Christ is going to do. Our actions around community, those who are marginalized, as we bring them in, we say, man, you might be pushed out by society, but I want you to know there's someone who died and loved you so much. He brought you in as a people. You might be hopeless and you might not have a situation and things are going well, but I want, not going well, but I want you to know what your hope is found is not in a new job. What your hope is found is not in a spouse. What your hope is found is not in an institution or a person. Your hope is found in Jesus Christ. As we demonstrate it and speak about it, it creates a wonderful platform to point to Christ. So the heartbeat, the home becomes the heartbeat of missions. The home becomes the heartbeat of missions. Missions to the nation starts at the home. And I'm wrapping up here, so just dial in. Missions becomes, uh, missions to the nations starts with a meal at home. It really does. And it's extremely ordinary. It is. But that gives me confidence. Because I don't want something too elaborate, too much. Because you know what, I, I struggle with that. But something ordinary 
is great. Why? Because most of us are ordinary. I know our Facebook profiles and our Instagram seems to just suggest otherwise, but most of us are just ordinary. And a meal resonates with so many people, and it's this beautiful thing. Missions does not have to be extraordinary. It starts off with something ordinary. And maybe we've made it extraordinary because we battle to talk to people outside of church about Jesus. Maybe we've made it extraordinary because we think that uh, God needs to use something extraordinary in order to save people rather than someone as simple as ourselves. Maybe we've made it extraordinary because we have to have the professional come along and give a professional sermon and hopefully then they will be saved at the special event. But friends, even those people who are, are coming to that special event, which are great, are often only come because they're invited by a Christian, because of friendship. And so we have this wonderful thing of meals. Parties aren't enough. The gospel is what we need, but the parties create a great platform for that. And they must be accompanied by people who are passionate for Jesus and passionate for others. And all you have to do, you don't have to prepare a fancy sermon, you don't have to have an elaborate plan on how to bring it around to the gospel each and every single time, you don't have to do that. All you have to be is be attentive to them and open about your faith. That's it. It's all that's required. Have them over for food, be attentive to them, and open about your faith. And I promise you'll see wonderful, wonderful fruit of that. Let us pray. Lord, we are incredibly grateful that you loved us so much that you would come to this earth. You crossed the divide, the great divide of heaven to earth because you loved us, that you would come and die for us. Lord, we have a heart for you and we want to make your name known. And, and as we speak about knowing our neighbor, one of the ways in which we're going to do this, Lord, is by having people around our table, hospitality. I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us a deep desire to eat more food with people. That we would be, uh, our tables would become more reflective of how you use them. That we would have people, Lord, who, are, who need grace, who need community, who need hope, who look different to us. Lord, may our tables become the heartbeat of missions. May it be a wonderful tool that we use for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.